Hello, this is Jane Sigford bringing you Views and Voice Above the Noise, a podcast hosted by MASA, Minnesota Association of School Administrators. It's been a while since I aired a podcast. Today's podcast is entitled Zoom, Masks, and Janice. For the past year, my life, like yours, has been dramatically different. We've all been inundated with uncertainty and changes and fear, scarcity, such as toilet paper and Lysol wipes. But routines and practices we have expected as givens in the past were no longer there. Nothing was quite the same. One couldn't just pick up and go to a movie or go out to lunch or pop into the grocery store without wearing a mask or maintaining a social distance. However, even with the promise of vaccines on the horizon, It's doubtful that society will return to exactly what was in place before. The uncertainty is not over, and we can use this time to reflect and create our own better future. Part of the title of this podcast is the mention of Janice. Who on earth is that, you say? Janice is a Roman god whose picture you might recognize because he has two faces, one looking back and the other looking forward. According to the blog AndersonLock.com, Janus was the god of doors, gates, and transitions. He represented a middle ground between concrete and abstract, such as between life and death, beginning and end, barbarism, and civilization. Hence, we have the name of our month of January that bridges the past year to the new one, just as this podcast is going to look at 2020 and 2021, hoping that this coming year opens figurative gates, doors, and opportunities. This is a rare opportunity because we were forced to do what many thought was going to be the ultimate direction of education, that of being able to provide education efficiently and satisfactorily through remote learning devices. However, we know that that has not worked so well which is definitely not a surprise to most educators. This venture into hybrid and remote learning has re-emphasized that learning is relational, contextual, and very human. There is no adequate replacement for good teachers. The learning that takes place with and for other people cannot be duplicated by a Zoom classroom. Relationships matter. It is not just the human contact that's different through devices such as Zoom, but it's also the type and content of instruction. Some hands-on, discussion-heavy, interactive content cannot achieve the same level of learning through technology. Let's face it, learning is contextual and human-dependent. The pandemic forced on us made us change and to change rapidly, even making changes daily. In the business world, Clayton Christensen from Harvard Business School has written several books about change on what he terms as, quote, disruptive innovation, unquote, which are those ideas or creations that disrupt the status quo, such as personal computers versus mainframes, cell phones versus landlines, phones that take photos as opposed to SLR cameras. All of those take us to something heretofore unheard of, but are better and more responsive to the needs of the new society. He has one book geared toward the medical profession and one specifically addressing higher education in which he posits that 50% of all higher ed institutions will be bankrupt in the next decade because the delivery systems will have to change, 
along with the idea of keeping up with the geometric multiplication of available information and incorporating the effects and utilization with social media. We in education are in a disruption because of this pandemic. We have had to change and need to be deliberate about how to change even more for our own future. Change rarely happens when people are comfortable. Disease, disruption, dissolution, dis-whatever implies something negative that begs for something different. If one has a dis-ease, one looks for ease or relief. If one has a disruption, one looks for continuity. If one is part of a dissolution, one looks for a solution. Throughout history, one can find many examples of innovations and ideas that have erupted and disrupted the status quo during some dark times. For example, some of the hardware that makes it possible for our cell phones to connect around the world evolved from an idea of actress Hedy Lamarr and her friend that allowed the communication and tracking of U-boats during World War II. Another example was when Sir Alexander Fleming, an immunologist, came upon the effects of penicillin by chance in his lab because he was upset over the needless deaths he had seen of soldiers during World War I. Synthetic nylon was developed during World War II, which was important for safe parachutes because silk was hard to get as it was controlled by Eastern countries and was so expensive and scarce. That synthetic was also used for women's hosiery and became known as nylons to replace the scarce silk stockings. Well, personally, I think the latest fashion of not wearing nylons is an even better disruption. In his book, Thanks for Being Late, Thomas Friedman described disruptions, but he called them accelerations, which acknowledges that change happens all the time, and sometimes faster than at other times. Historically, there have been periods of rapid change in a particular area, such as the Industrial Revolution or the Technology Revolution. This change occurred in one single major area. However, Friedman discusses how at this time, that we live in, it's unlike any other because the rapid change is happening in three areas at once, causing ill ease and disruption throughout our world. The three accelerations are climate change, technology, and globalization. Disruptions in all three areas at one time throws the rapidity of change into overdrive. I will add a long overdue fourth accelerant, which erupted this year, and that is a heightened demand for the elimination of racism and casteism to coin a term based on author Isabel Wilkerson's book called Caste. The murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis precipitated an anger and outcry to look at racism, microaggressions, and police brutality in the U.S. and in the world. We have been educated to think that the idea of caste is associated with Hindu India, but Wilkerson in her book and this book is a must-read for every teacher, high school student, and parent in the U.S., described race as, quote, the conditioning of assumptions and the values to physical features, therefore determining how people are treated, positions they can hold, where they can live, unquote. Racism is a concern for us as educators so that we look at our practices, our content, and our structures that reinforce this horrible practice. Caste Wilkerson describes as a system that ranks, quote, human value by setting the supremacy of a certain group over presumed inferior groups, 
The basis of this classification is based on ancestry, and the system is rigid to ensure each group remains distinct and in their rightful place, unquote. Race and caste reinforce each other, with one being the manifestation of the other. Racism, casteism is a fourth accelerant because it is embedded in each of the previous three, in technology because of issues of the digital divide, in climate change because of poverty and access to healthy options, clean water, adequate living conditions, and globalism because racism and caste are present around the world in issues including our immigration practices. Therefore, if one thinks of the changes in technology, globalism, climate change, and racial caste attention, one can recognize that we are living in a time unlike any other. What does this mean for us? In this Janarian time, we have been given a rare opportunity to make an honest assessment of the changes we need to make. Let's demonstrate courage to create our own future and not wait for another pandemic to force us to do things differently. However, this will take leadership at all levels with vision, courage, humility, a sense of humor, vulnerability, flexibility, all of which are embedded in our love for children, our profession, and our world. So where do we start? We must start with the most profound discussion with those people on the front lines, our teachers and students, about the fundamental purpose of education and what and how we teach, which means talking matter-of-factly to see how our oft-criticized, tired, egg-crate, teacher-as-expert system needs to be modified, parts are dropped, and other pieces are reshaped. The first discussion that we have to have is about the two most fundamental facets of our profession. One, what is the purpose of public education? And two, what is it that students need to know and do? One could argue that currently schools are really not about learning because we have standards, but if a student hasn't mastered the designated age standards, they are still passed on to the next grade level anyway. How can we expect students to learn new content if they do not have the foundation for it? Plus, schools are not paid when students learn. They are paid by the number of age-related students in school on a certain day. If we wanted to emphasize that school is really about learning, we would pay schools when students master the age-appropriate standards, if indeed those standards are what students must know and do. We cannot divert the importance of the necessity of this fundamental conversation by getting trapped in the cul-de-sac of discussing management issues. A cul-de-sac is when you go down a road, end up driving in a semicircle, and then go back the same way you came in. Many things we label as change, such as changing the length of the school day or going to a six-period day or having a later start time, take us back to the same place we started, and they're really cul-de-sacs. We've really not made major change. Management discussions are important only if they help us facilitate what we really need to do. There is a place for these discussions only after we have arrived at a unified understanding of our true purpose and what we really have to know and teach. All that being said, what is the purpose of public education? I believe we can all agree that a well-educated populace is integral and vital to a healthy democracy, but what does that really mean? In the past, I have asked, 
groups of superintendents and principals or students that very question. There are as many different answers as there are people in the room. I get answers such as teach lifelong learning, prepare students for higher ed, prepare students for the work world, teach citizenship. Often the responders put several of these ideas into one sentence. These are all good things, but they are not our fundamental purpose. They are byproducts of what we do. I would suggest that our true mission is to teach literacy in developmentally appropriate ways in language arts, social sciences such as history, geography, economics, and politics, mathematics, science, and technology. The arts are also a crucial part of a liberal arts education and in fostering growth in what it means to be a human being living in community, but they are not how schools are evaluated. They are a crucial vehicle for teaching literacy in those core areas and in using critical thinking, problem solving, group skills, creativity. They are the skills that help establish a caring, well-balanced human community. But there is a disconnect between what we know matters and how schools are assessed. So maybe it's time for us to change that assessment. More on that later. But for students to be successful in this world, they need to have literacy skills in those vital areas. One of the particularly important ahas that has come from this pandemic with our hybrid and distance learning is the overwhelming acknowledgement that learning is relational. So much is learned in context by sharing, by listening to others, by comparing, by being with people. We can focus the emphasis on learning in those core areas if we are deliberate in our use of language. For example, one way to look at this is that parents have the quote job of going to work to be able to support their families. Let's shape the conversation so that kids see that their job is to go to school to learn. Michael Hartunian, a retired professor from the University of Minnesota, is a very wise man. In one of the professional development sessions I was fortunate enough to attend with him, he talked about how he disagreed with the idea that students are our clients, which is a term that's always felt off to me, but I did not know why. Instead, Dr. Hartunian suggested that the culture of schools would be richer if students stopped thinking of themselves as clients, but instead adopted the idea that their job was to be a scholar. The difference between a scholar and a client is dramatic because if students are clients, then it is solely the job of the teacher to give information and the student is a passive recipient. The relationship is unequal as the biggest burden and responsibility is on the teacher. If, however, students are scholars, then it's a teacher's job to provide learning opportunities and it's the scholar's job to engage, to learn, to think, to probe. The relationship becomes equal with each bearing responsibility and each learning from the other. It's a scholar's job to achieve literacy in these vital areas. Wouldn't that be a great message and a great attitude for our students to have? Once we have established a paradoxically simple yet very complicated to do message about the purpose of education, it's time for us to discuss what we teach and how we do that. Unfortunately, the accountability movement with its voracious appetite for numbers and data has detracted, distracted, and denigrated the emphasis on content and instruction. 
Instead, we disaggregate, reaggregate, and publish numbers as though that will help both learning and instruction. I would suggest that the information on who is learning what is important, but I would also suggest that all that information has not moved the needle in increasing the successful learning, particularly in relation to the amount of time and money we have spent on testing, gathering, and interpreting data. It's readily apparent that curriculum instruction have taken a back seat when one looks at the emphasis, or lack of, that districts put on that department. Because one does not have to have a license in Minnesota to have a curriculum and instruction position, as you must for educational technology, finance, human resources, administration, this work falls to a wide variety of practitioners. Now, some districts do not have curriculum people at the cabinet level, and or have replaced curriculum specialists with technology people who are usually not trained in pedagogy or curriculum. If a district has a curriculum specialist, it may be a person on special assignment to fill a contract, to be an interventionist, and often these interventionists do not receive any specialized training in how to meet the divergent learning strategies that are needed for students. The unintended message is that anyone can do curriculum and it's not as important as those other areas when, in fact, this is the lifeblood of what we do. Particularly in this time of rapid change, we need to re-emphasize the training and discussion of what we teach and how we do it. How has teaching changed? In the past, teachers were supposed to deliver their knowledge in their area of specialization. Their pedagogical capacity was not as important as their specific content knowledge. Elementary teachers usually receive more pedagogical training than secondary teachers because they rightfully so need to learn differing strategies depending on the many content areas and developmental ages that they teach. In addition to curriculum and pedagogical knowledge, technology now surrounds the learning as both a tool and a content. Teachers must embed and use technology in instructional delivery and content. This is often a place where teachers can learn from students because our students are often more digitally adept, I can't even say those words, than our students. This is an ever-changing part of what teachers must know and do and what students must know and do. What kind of teaching and learning do we need? Michael Fullen, Professor Emeritus of University of Toronto, Ontario's Institute for Studies in Education, and author of many inspiring books, describes what he calls deeper teaching, which then leads to deeper learning for students. I recommend reading his paper, Rich Seam, for a thorough discussion of this type. This paper is available online. He says, quote, teaching shifts from focusing on covering all required content to focusing on the learning process, developing students' ability to lead their own learning and to do things with their learning. Teachers are partners with students in deep learning tasks characterized by exploration, connectedness, and broader real-world purposes. Deep learning goes beyond the mastery of existing content knowledge. Here, deep learning is defined as creating and using new knowledge in the world. Technology has unleashed learning and the potential for students to apply knowledge in the world outside of school." Unquote. However, this deeper learning cannot happen if students are not literate in the above areas.
Deeper learning is predicated upon a, quote, deep relationship between teacher and students that is a learning partnership, not the idea of students being passive recipients of the knowledge and the teacher, unquote, again, from Michael Fullan. His comments are a rephrasing of the way I talked about client versus scholar. But what we know is that teachers are no longer the sole fount of knowledge. For that, we have Google. For the purposes of this podcast, I asked a college freshman, freshly out of high school and experiencing college in a hybrid and remote fashion, as to what would have made more of a difference in high school to keep her engaged and how college was different. Here's what she said, and I'm continually reminded of the saying, out of the mouths of babes. Her answer is a real-life description of deeper learning and deeper teaching. Here's the quote. I think what really made a difference in college for me was the professors. The professors at college obviously have more experience and expertise in their subjects and therefore are more passionate and engaging. High school professors also have the short end of the stick because they must do the same class every day so it is just a monotonous heap of uninteresting information. I think students are struggling right now to find meaning in any of these online classes in college and in high school. When the teachers do not show much motivation about their subjects, it does not encourage the students, and they need that right now. It is probably so hard for the teachers, too, but I think more of an overall enthusiasm about school and the subjects they are teaching would benefit not only the students, but the teachers as well. I hated math before we went to online school, but my teacher now was deeply passionate about it and was flexible and creative about the homework she assigned, so I genuinely wanted to do my math homework. I also think pre-recorded lectures allow the teacher to make one enthusiastic and clear-cut video that students can watch and re-watch if they want. Live lectures on Zoom go in one ear and out the other, and I speak from experience. I think the students should be allowed to do the work on their own then come together for a discussion section later in the week and be held accountable that way for the work they did. I also think it's important for there to be options in the work kids do, because if they are all forced to do the same thing, chances are a couple of them will not be interested in the topic. So, if they are given a range of things to choose to study within the subject, it will make the experience more fun for the students and the teachers." Unquote. That all sounds like deeper learning and deeper teaching to me. The next part of this discussion is about the assessment of learning, which is a logical outgrowth of our discussions above. How do we know we've accomplished what we want? How do we measure it in a way that gives us, the learner, and the community usable information? Again, a voice of Michael Fullen. What is crystal clear from our interviews and existing research is that many current curriculum standards alongside standardized assessments that primarily measure content reproduction are the greatest barriers to the widespread adoption of new pedagogies. Greater clarity and precision of deep learning concepts followed by valid new ways to measure deep learning outcomes are essential for the expansion of the new pedagogies across whole systems." Unquote. What are some goals of meaningful assessment? Falenig continues with his ideas. Learning outcomes are measured in terms of, quote, capacities to build new knowledge and to lead their own learning effectively. Two, proactive dispositions and their abilities to persevere through challenges. And three, the development of citizens who are lifelong learners, unquote. 
That all sounds good, but how does it look developmentally? As we teach for literacy in core content areas, it may be easier to assess success at younger ages because we are often dealing with more finite skills such as the ability to decode words and understand what is read, the manipulation of math algorithms, the knowledge of where to find countries on a map, than it is to measure the abstract goals we hope for in our senior high students. For example, it might be harder to assess if a high school student understands the geopolitical ramifications of such things as moving the Israeli capital to Jerusalem from Tel Aviv. Here's another quote from Michael Fullen. He's been a very busy guy. Quote, assessment is of paramount importance to policymakers, leaders, teachers, and parents, not just because public accountability demands it, but because all parties need to know what works in order to achieve the new aim, unquote. What exactly does that mean? How would it look? This is where the expertise of teachers, their knowledge of each student, their use of and access to technology will help create meaningful ways of assessment and measurement. But we do know this that factoid fill-in-the-bubble tests are an inadequate shorthand to measure true deep learning. If learning were only about the factoids of standardized tests, we could just rename school as Google. That is not learning, that's just stuff. As we look at assessment, there is a way we can eliminate one of the racist practices that we have been forced to use, and that is the practice of disaggregating data by race. There is only one race, the human one. If you listened to a previous podcast of mine when I discussed the article, How Real is Race? This will sound familiar. The article was written by two anthropologists who emphasize there's only one race as verified by the tiny variance, less than 6% in the genetic makeup among the so-called different races, having curly hair, epicanthus folds, susceptibility to sickle cell anemia, for example, are some of the variations and they do not affect learning. These visible physical differences are not linked to brain function. By continually having a racial category, we perpetuate racism. Unwittingly, if teachers see a child of color, they unconsciously have different expectations, which may lead to self-fulfilling prophecy, using fewer challenging materials, having different behavioral expectations, and so on. By continually emphasizing the so-called achievement gap, it is possible that we are perpetuating it. Let's change our assessment practices so it, they are about what a child knows or does not and then what needs to be learned. When looking at student data, we should cover up student names, look at the data as to what a student knows, and then program where to go next, apart from looking at a name and identifying somebody by race. What is the role of teachers' unions in these discussions? Unions could be a very positive force in causing and supporting major changes, but they too would have to realign their priorities. Unions were begun to gain and protect workers' rights, and they've done a great job. However, this focus needs to change away from constantly going to the legislature about such things as last in, first out, and salaries. The legislature is tired of hearing the same song and getting the same outcome. What if the unions became a major source of teacher support for meaningful professional development in how to make the changes that we need? What if the unions offered expert teachers as peer coaches to new teachers? What if they provided a cadre of pedagogical experts to help teachers adapt their teaching strategies? 
What if they work to encourage retired teachers to be student tutors and mentors across the state so that this wisdom and experience of years of teaching does not just sit home and watch Netflix? This would take a major redefinition of their self-imposed mission. Wouldn't it be amazing if unions work to support the professionalism of our teachers, not just their wallets? What is the role for our political leaders? And everyone knows this is a big discussion. Because everyone has gone to school, but they believe they know education, which is a very condescending attitude toward the expertise of teachers. Just because I've lived in a house does not mean I can build one. Discussions with politicians, teachers, administrators, parents, and students all together would be a great place for local control and politics to marry to ensure that the respective needs of different areas are met and not just a competition for funding and attention that exists among urban, suburban, and rural districts. Karl Marx is credited with saying it best, from each according to his ability to each according to his needs. Sometimes, because a change seems so overwhelming, no one wants to take it on, and it might be true in this area. And that's very understandable. But do we wait for the system to fail before we change? What we know is that the discussions such as these must occur at many levels over time with the goal of making a difference, not just publishing a paper. It's work, it's hard work, but it's good and necessary work. So how does one begin? One, gather a group of teachers and administrators with a good facilitator to have deep discussions about the two foundational issues, purpose of public education and curriculum instruction. This is a process and not the product of only one meeting. As we know, change does not happen overnight, but it is crucial to use this time when the change that has been foisted upon us is fresh and raw. Two, in these meetings, brainstorm ideas that will gradually evolve into categories. It is also appropriate that there will be different categories by developmental ages. Three, from that, one can decide about next steps. Make certain to use this time to propel change and emphasize what works and emphasize getting rid of what is no longer necessary. Four, plan for follow-up discussions on deeper leadership, which could be the subject of an entire discussion. Five, there will need to be follow-up meetings on assessment. How do we measure deeper learning? Here are some possible discussion questions as starters for your group. One, on the purpose of public education. Define in one simple sentence your guiding definition of the purpose of public education. This is not an easy task, but is absolutely crucial. From this definition comes the vision for what we are about. This definition cannot include everything and the byproducts of what we do. Two, before the next meeting that you have, it would be helpful to have participants read Michael Fullan's A Rich Seam, How New Pedagogies Find Deeper Learning. That's available online. And here are some questions. What if we redefine the purpose of elementary versus middle versus high school in what literacy in the core areas look like in each? What if we did not pass students along until they mastered the standards, if the standards are truly what students need to know and do? What if we had continuous progress classes, looping high school classes, unlinked to grade level? What if high school were a time of using knowledge to probe deeper learning, such as a model UN, community outreach programs, art projects, community service, 
looking at current events and then going backwards to see how we got to where we are and discussing what happened and what could have been different. The possibilities are endless and so exciting. Talk about what worked well. What new technique did I have to learn as a teacher? As a corollary, what did I used to do that I didn't have to do anymore? What techniques worked best for elementary, middle, high school, special needs? What do I as a teacher wish I knew how to do? Three, am I a deeper teacher? What does that mean? What does that look like? Are relationships a key part of my instructional practice? Four, what do we need to stop doing? Like in assessments, are we over-assessing? Are we assessing in a rote manner and not really looking at what a student learned? Stop looking at data desegregated by race. Should we eliminate MCAs? They've been put on hold during the pandemic and what happened or didn't because of that. Some schools even have a high population of students who refuse to take the tests. What are the consequences of that, if any? Five, we know that technology is a tool and content, so what technologies were crucial to teaching in the pandemic? What were the issues with Zoom? Did all your students have digital access? If not, what happened? Were you able to make access equitable to all students? Were all of your students equally facile with technological learning strategies? If not, what happened? How did the distance learning affect measurement of learning? Is there anything you would like to continue to do once we have students back face-to-face full-time? What learning practices are outdated and need to be dropped? What training do teachers need? What technological strategies did you learn from your students? What were the unexpected issues that arose because of distance learning and how did you deal with them? Are there changes that need to happen to attendance policies, disciplinary practices? How do you keep students engaged in remote learning? How did this change teacher collegiality? How can technology be used for peer teaching among students as a learning and perhaps even an assessment tool? In assessment or measurement, if we keep in mind the purpose of public education and that school is about learning, how should we assess learning? What are meaningful assessments? How can technology be a tool for gathering information and for assessment? In relationships, what did you learn about your relationships during this time with students, coworkers, parents? How do we develop strong relationships with all students so that deeper learning can happen for all students? Aside notes, technology is embedded in the topics of curriculum instruction and assessment. It can't be separated entirely, but it can be separate when coming to action steps. Another major discussion topic is management. Administrators are often perceived as managers, but how do we change that role so these administrators are seen as a new type of leader, a deeper leader who uses management to facilitate deeper learning and teaching, not as an end in itself. New leaders need to have a vision to be able to let go of old redundant practices and to help keep that which works. It involves deep listening, flexibility, setting aside egos, and the ability to create an atmosphere of positivity about our important work. That being said, are there structural changes that need to be made to support our deeper learning and deeper teaching? Does everyone have to be in the building at the same time? Could some people start at noon and have a different day? Should we stop the MCAs? We should, should we stop all of the assessment and do more about teaching and learning? Should we do more professional development? Is the teacher evaluation system antiquated? 
Do all the schools in the district have to be the same? Do all districts have to be the same? What do we need to do about attendance policies? Because we know that no matter how many attendance policies you have, it does not really change kids coming to school because there are various reasons that kids miss. What does a grade mean? How can we improve measurement and assessment? What can we drop and what do we need to add? You will think of other topics that must come up when you talk about deeper leadership and how that role has to support deeper teaching and learning. Here are some general caveats. This is a big, important, complex undertaking, one that takes time, sustained energy, risk-taking, problem-solving, all the skills we want our students to have. It is also exciting, it's vital, and imperative that we involve a range of stakeholders so we get the best outcome. Jal Maida, professor at Harvard, said it best in a recent column, quote, districts could embrace this shift by moving away from top-down edicts and instead inviting teachers, students, and community members to co-design the structures that affect them, unquote. It's important to be comfortable with discomfort in these discussions. As educators, we work hard to solve problems and teach. We do not sit easily with uncertainty. However, if nothing else, this pandemic has taught us that uncertainty is certain and we have had to deal with it. The learning goals may be the same across the district, but different sites may have different ways of addressing them because we are not and never have been homogenous. It's okay to be different if the goal, teaching literacy and core content areas, is constant. Just as any teacher or parent knows, no two children are the same, what works for one may not work for the other. And again, it's okay for districts to be different, to take different strategies for deeper learning and deeper teaching. But we can also learn from one another because learning is relational for us as well as for students. As you can tell, this is an exciting time in spite of all the negativity. Duke Ellington said, quote, a problem is a chance for you to do your best, unquote. The Navajo have a culture that honors seven generations in making choices and decisions in their community because it is as necessary to look to ancestors as it is to consider descendants. Great-grandparents to grandparents to parents, children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren. To me, that is how I want to think of education. What did it mean to great-grandparents and how can I keep that feeling alive and well for my great-grandchildren? What a beautiful thought. This is Jane Sigford signing off. My email is jlsigford at comcast.net. Thanks for listening.